This is the Doctor Who podcast. You are most welcome. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the Doctor Who podcast. In this episode, Leeson and I will be sitting down in the camper van to look at that great man, Mr. John Nathan Turner. Yes, hello again. I'm here for the first time recording with Tom as, a, as an official <laughs> member of the, ca- of the camper van. Hi, Tom. Hello. Yeah, you didn't have to follow James's advice and have me chained up like this, to be honest. Uh, he said it would be best. Well, yeah, James says a lot of things. Not all of them are necessarily true or correct. But hello, nonetheless. <laughs> so, and as you said in your beautiful intro, we're here to discuss the most contentious of Doctor Who producers, John Nathan Turner. I think most people will know who John Nathan Turner was, or actually is. Um, but for anyone who's not so sure, um, John Nathan Turner was the producer for Doctor Who in uh, a very, very difficult and turbulent time. In fact, he was the producer from the end of Tom Baker's era, right up until the very end of the show. Um, and over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to be doing, so Lisa and I today, and then Trevor and James next week, is to look at that huge expanse of Doctor Who and try and, and well, I think number one, guide people through the era, but also try and offer an opinion and try and maybe uh, have, have, have our listeners go back and reconsider some of the stories that uh, came out during his tenure. Does that sound right to you? That sounds about right to me. Yeah, fabulous. So, where's a good place to start? Um, well, maybe maybe a little bit of background, um, because one, one of the things I think that's, that, that's, that's kind of interesting is to consider that John Nathan Turner, or JNT, as he's uh, commonly known, is not unlike Russell T. Davis or RTD, in as much as they both were in charge of Doctor Who at, a very, impo- at very important times. One, trying to keep the show on the air and making sure that it would live, uh, and the other bringing it back after it, after it had been away from our screens for some time. So... In style, in content, in direction, uh, and in purpose, uh, JNT and RTD have got an awful lot in common. And it could be argued that they both uh, went approached things in similar ways with similar results in some cases. I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about that. I, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, John Nathan Turner is very similar to RTD in many respects, not least because he was he was perhaps the, the first producer that people were aware of. He was quite a quite a larger than life character, mm. and he did a lot to promote the show. Um, mm. Partly, as you say, because later on uh, the show needed a bit of promotion and it needed uh, needed a, a boost uh, when when ratings were flagging. But he was a very over the top, uh, gregarious character with his Hawaiian uh, shirts and uh, and TV appearances. He was a very good promoter of the show. See, I think I think you're right. I mean, another thing that I've noticed because um, for the as a researcher, I've been listening to the uh, the Big Finish John Nathan Turner memoirs. Highly recommended if you can get hold of mm. them. Um, and it seems that John Nathan Turner was one of the f- was the first producer in any real sense to actively pursue an American audience, and of course uh, enlisting the, the Doctor's first American companion. Mm-hmm. Although I, I'm not entirely sure that that was the best way to go about it, uh, especially casting a non-American. I mean, I 
I, I don't agree with everything people say about uh, Nicola Bryant's performance, uh, you know, the, especially the American accent. I think it's rather good. I never questioned it when I was younger. It was only years later I discovered that she was English. But I think you should, you should cast an American if, you, if you're wanting to appeal to the American uh, crowd because they'll spot it a mile off. Well, that, that, but that was the interesting thing. Uh, apparently, the entire production team thought she was American. It was only <laughs> some time later that it came out that she wasn't. <laughs> Which is really quite sad, because she's actually from Guildford, which is where, I was, where I'm from, actually. It's That's right, but it's easy to fool the English uh, and harder to fool the Americans, I think. Well, I, I, I think you could be right. It was, it was confusing. It's, it's confusing in hindsight. But mm. at, the t- at the time, frankly, I just accepted it and thought, well, OK, she's nice little, you know, an interesting, an interesting person. I suppose we should rewind now. To when uh, John Lincoln Turner took the reins of Doctor Who straight after the Graham Williams era, it's it's difficult to convey how striking the opening moments of season eighteen actually are. I mean, now every, I know everyone has their favourite season, everyone has their favourite Doctor, um, and a lot of people have, are, are fans of season eighteen, which was Tom Baker's last season, but co- uh, but conversely, John Nathan Turner's first as producer. He'd been on the production for a very long time by then as uh, production unit manager, as runner, as floor assistant, any number of roles uh, around, around the show over a number of years until he made it to the top, which was to say producer. Now, up until, that, up until now, and certainly for the, for the previous uh, five and six years, uh, the opening titles of Doctor Who had been those wonderful blue time tunnel effects um, and the, uh, the theme tune had been a, a lovely arrangement of Ron Graham's tune. But in 1981, suddenly everything changed. I remember sitting there, the shock of this moving starscape, so from blue to black, um, and the, the very organic uh, sounding theme tune had become this electronic elect, electronic organ, electric guitar, and a huge soundscape that was actually totally striking and unlike anything anyone had seen before. Um, Lisa, what, what did you make of the titles when they first showed up? Um, well, they were... Absolutely, as you say, striking, absolutely uh, amazing. And the whole tone of the show was set by those new titles, the new title sequence, the older picture of Tom Baker. Um, and I think only twice, perhaps, in the entire history of Doctor Who has there been such a gear change, such a noticeable gear change between production teams, uh, perhaps going from the black and white era uh, into the Pertwee era, because you, you had colour, uh, and there was obviously a, a shift to more adult stories. Uh, and then again with the shift from Graham Williams to John Nathan Turner, and again when the show came back with uh, Rusty Davis in 2005, uh, it definitely set things up as uh, the, the show had had an injection of life into it, uh, which is which is what uh, John Nathan Turner was brought in to do, I think. The change in tone uh, in every respect, in terms of costume, in terms of music, in terms of titles, in terms of layout, in terms of focus, all of it uh, was very much like the change between... Uh, Russell, say Russell T Davies at the end of uh, at the end of time, uh, the beginning of uh, Stephen Moffat's era with uh, the the eleventh hour. Uh, it, again, it's just a total shift. It's definitely the same show, but it's very very clearly regenerated and changed. Um, so as as we open as we open up with the Leisure Hive, we can see that things have become a little bit more 
leisurely. I say leisurely. They've, they've become a little bit more cinematic. There's this huge, long tracking shot across Brighton Beach to the Doctor asleep in a deck chair in a whole new costume. Now, Tom Baker's costume had been unusual for many years before. The long scarf, the hat, the coat. But now, a total redesign by June Hudson had, this, uh, had his costume in this lovely, with these lovely purples, plums and burgundies. Um, Listen again, I, I have to ask, what, what did you make of the costume when you first saw it? Uh, I really like the the, the transmogrification, if you will, of, the, of Tom Baker's costume um, into season 18. And it's a, it's a sign of, of what sweeping changes John Lathan Turner was prepared to bring uh, when he took over as, as producer, because he actually gave uh, carte blanche to the designer to redesign the costume completely and said you can lose the scarf if you want to. I mean, nothing was sacred at this point, uh, including Tom, as I'm sure we'll come on to. It was the whole, the whole look, the whole feel, the fact that he dropped Dudley Simpson as the, um, as the, uh, the composer for the series. It completely shifted things. It, it moved the goalposts, uh, and nothing was sacred, and you knew nothing was going to be quite the same again. How, how would you con- how would you say the show changed when it came back as opposed to when it left our screens at the end of uh, season seventeen? What, what, what do you think the differences were? Uh, the biggest difference, I think, aside from Dudley Simpson's score not being present and, and the, the the composing duties being given over to the Radiophonic Workshop, so it was individual um, composers each week that would that would piece the sounds together. It went back to the the electronic roots of Doctor Who music. I think it's, it was the reining in of Tom Baker from the, the pantomime and the comedy that had been um, very prevalent in the previous few seasons. Uh, and I think that was, in, that was important and it needed doing. Uh, it came at the right time. But it was such a grand shift from uh, high comedy, extreme pantomime, to very, very, very dark fourth doctor. And a great sense of foreboding... Uh, it was obvious that uh, I think it, it was common knowledge at this point that this would be Tom's last season. So the the darkness that was brought that was was forced upon Tom Baker, I think, and then that coupled with the fact that I think he was he was a bit grumpy in himself, um, <laughs> personal problems really added weight to to the character of the Fourth Doctor, and he, he seemed to go back to to the darkness that he, he displayed a little more in the in the first and second series. I think you're right. I think you're right. The key to this is that Tom Baker was being reined in. I mean, when we think when we think about the Fourth Doctor, we think of this technicolour, wisecracking, irreverent, wonderful, amazing alien character. And you're right. By the end of uh, nineteen of the nineteen eighties, uh, he was he, Tom Baker had become a little bit bigger than the show. Also, he. Th- also, he appeared to be behaving, um, in as much as he he would rarely. It, Reportedly, he would rarely stick to scripts. Um, he could be difficult to work with, but at the same time, he was also a tireless ambassador for the show before uh, bef- before there was an established convention circuit. I mean, the, the story goes that he was uh, quite used to coming in and saying, "Right, well then, I'll leave," and handing in his resignation. Uh, and, and this happened quite regularly, and then he would be begged to stay. Uh, but this time, he did his little turn, uh, handed in his reg- resignation to uh, Chris Bidmead and, and John Lathan Turner, and and they accepted it. Exactly so, exactly so. So the end of an era in every, in every real sense, but also the beginning of something very new. Let's, let's, let's have a look at some of those stories, though. Um, I, get the feel, I, th- I get the feeling that although Tom Baker's departure wasn't made official until midway through the season, um, 
that each of these stories appears to fe- appears to feature an attempt to kill the old man. Yes. <laughs> um, starting off with the Leisure Hive, with uh, which we, I think we've established it had that very different feel to it, but which actually shows the Doctor being number one dismembered, uh, which caused any number of complaints to, to come into the BBC. Um, again, a, one, a wonderful bit of publicity from John Nathan Turner. He's going, and we're going to pull him apart. Um, and as well as being almost as well as being overaged to death. But again, very shocking, particularly for younger viewers who may not have known that Tom Baker was leaving, but to see the Doctor in such constant peril. Um, so, but The Leisure Hive is a great story. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a good, solid season opener. Um, but then we give way into Megloss. Now, I don't know if you have any have a view on Megloss at all. I enjoy I enjoy Megloss. I don't quite see what the the, the negative fuss is about about Megloss. I always enjoy seeing um, the Doctor playing an evil version of. Um, is it the enemy of the world? Uh, yes, um, and and Tom Baker really really goes into he really relishes the uh, the chance to play uh, an evil sort of blanker, darker cactus version of the Fourth Doctor. Mm, of course, yes, and and of course inside this story we've got uh, a guest appearance by Jacqueline Hill, um, who played Barbara Wright. So the first. Uh, the, you know, a member of the first TARDIS crew makes an appearance in this last season for Tom Baker. But Megloss, an interesting story, very much of its time, but with some great effects that show up. What I'd also, uh, but again, inside this, there's at least there's one throwaway line which I noticed on reviewing some some months ago, where um, the, so the, the, the conceit at the centre of the story is that the Doctor is being impersonated by an intelligent cactus who takes on his shape. Um, and at one point, the doctor throws away his jacket, and the, one of the, and one of the people inside the story says, "Well, we might as well keep the jacket. He won't be needing it anymore." Ooh. A, which is quite, which is one of those. It, it, clearly, it's scripted, but it's one of those lines that you can attach a bit more weight to uh, as time In goes retrospect, on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Interesting. The inclusion of Jacqueline Hill uh, is also an indicator of, of what was to come with the John Nathan Turner era. He did like to bring back uh, old monsters to. Um, uh, to call back to the history of the show, mm. now, with, without, funnily enough, not without employing older people who'd worked on the show previously. He was never too keen on having writers who had previously worked on the show or, or directors. Now, do you know? Okay, so in, you, you raise a very interesting point there. So, John Nathan Turner had, had been connected with Doctor Who in one way or another since the Patrick Troughton era. So, do you th- do you think it's fair to say that this is the first instance of, of of a fan of the show becoming instrumental in its making? I think I think that's absolutely right. It, it never occurred to me like that before, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right, uh, and that would explain the way that he would he uh, he coveted the, the fandom really, didn't he? He was the first. He would grant interviews to fanzines, and he would go to conventions, and mm. yeah. Uh, so that that would tally with that that he, he still perhaps felt that he was um, he was a fan. Do you think John Nathan Turner was a saint or a sinner? I think when you weigh it up, pros and cons, he was a saint. The main detractors, the main things that you hear people picking his era apart for, uh, are, seem to me, in comparison to, to in well in relation and relatively to, to how successful his era was and what he did for the show, are you know small fry. It's it's question marks on collars, which you know wasn't a brilliant idea, but you know in the grand scheme of things, I can live with it. That's fine. Um, I think it. People pick on him for that because it, they, they thought they saw it as an attempt to to bring the mystery back into the character. But I, I think that's that, that's not true. I, I think it was more of an attempt to uh, have a, a logo. He he was big on branding and, and wanted to be able to brand a product. 
which I think was frowned upon at the time because you didn't really do that with television shows. But you know, today's uh, television shows are all all branded. In a, in a way, he was a visionary. As you rightly say, the things that people complain about at the time seemed to be. And from a very, and for a very certain angle, i.e., a quite uninformed angle, I have to say, seemed to be uh, fair game. I.e., why the the, the costume, the, the changing of costumes, as you say, question marks on collars, the crowded TARDIS, all of these, the ch- and and change, forcing change into this show. But then again, this, these are changes being made by someone who was very intimately involved with the show and had been for a very long time and had its best interest absolutely at heart. And with hindsight, I think it's possible to say that although some of the decisions that he made at the time might have seemed a little bit odd. This was possibly the best person to make those decisions and in and with a couple of exceptions, um the costume, I think he might, I think he pretty much got it right. I, I, I don't think it's any secret that you know, I, I, I'm happy to defer to people who know better about things that I only consume, because I, I can't make Doctor Who. I, I, I can tell what I do and don't like. But each decision that's taken isn't taken lightly, and it does cost money and does require consultation. So it's not as if, so it's, not as, as if it's a dictatorship where someone is saying, you will do this whether you like it or not. Some, all the way along the line, there are people who are making checks and balances to say, well, yes, this is a good idea, or this, yes, this is a, this is a bad idea. Um, well, my, my view on, on Doctor Who, and, and part of the reason why I like it, is because by its very nature it changes uh, and uh, it, it becomes different things at different times in its history it's, uh, and by that very fact, the nature of that fact, it's never going to speak to you as much as it, it's never going to speak to you 100% of the time so you know, if, if there's something you're not enjoying so much, sit back, wait, the next season will come along and you know, it'll might swing back the way you like it John Nathan Turner had the hard job of saying goodbye to Tom Baker, um, and this sto- and season eighteen uh, features a thing called the East Space Trilogy, uh, w- the point at which the old guard really starts to break down. I mean, up until now, the Doctor's been travelling with Romana and K Nine. K Nine, a great hit, a great smash with with children, myself included, um, and both of these companions, uh, his Time Lord, his, his Time Lord Foil, and the little robot dog, had to be written out of the show to make way for the incoming TARDIS crew, and of course the incoming Doctor. Now, inside that, inside season eighteen, we've got what's called the East Space Trilogy. Um, first story in that full circle. Second story, State of Decay, and then Warriors Gate. I have to say, inside season eighteen. Um, it does get very dark. Um, uh, State of Decay is what I personally think should have been Tom Baker's last story because it's everything. It's everything you want about the Fourth Doctor. It's scary. It's dark. It's inspired. It's ah, oh, it's wonderful. If 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 Tom Baker had left the show on State of Decay. Uh, which is a vampire yarn. If, if, guys, if, you're not, if you've not seen it, seek it out. It's wonderful, very gothic, very dark. Um, then that would have been absolutely it for me. A, a, a great story well told. But unfortunately, there were... Well, I say unfortunately. Um, there were other stories to come, though. Um, we, we, had, we go down through Warrior's Gate, very 80s. A bit like an Ultravox video, I thought. Mm, uh, incredibly visionary in, in, the way, in the writing and the uh, realisation on screen, which, which I don't mind. Some very successful CSO. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed, agreed. It was groundbreaking. I think the use of the handicam um, for that for that for that first person view, which we're now so familiar with from shows like The Wire and so and so on and so on, and even the build towards the end of its tenure, um, was the f- it was first really seen in a dramatic sense in uh, on the BBC, on the BBC anyway. Uh, and also notable. Yes, correct me if I'm wrong here. Is this not the first time that uh, Graham Harper uh, directed some scenes for uh, Doctor Who? Yes, yes, he, got, he, certainly, he certainly got involved in that. Definitely, absolutely. Um, go, Graham, and it goes like this, lots of energy. Harper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, OK, after Warriors Gate, departure of Romana and K-9, a, you know, a, a, a big moment in Doctor Who. 
We get to the Keeper of Traken and, of course, Tom Baker's swan song, Legopolis. Now, okay, I'm, I'm kind of r- ripping through this, but um, John Nathan Turner's idea apparently was that you, you should have a, a crowded TARDIS, lots of companions, to ease the transition into a new Doctor, so you, you're almost getting a new family rather than just a new figurehead. Mm. Um, do you, was, that, was, that a success, was that a successful ploy? Uh, no, uh, because uh, as, as has been said, ad infinitum, uh, at every convention, every DVD extra, uh, you have to split, you have to find things for these people to do. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the more avenues, you ha- story avenues you have to have in an episode, uh, the harder it is to, to keep the focus of the episode, I think. Uh, I, am I right in saying that uh, there, was, there was the idea of bringing Louise Jameson back? Yes. In, in order to, to, I think that was the initial idea, wasn't it? Mm, was to mm. have a familiar companion come back to bridge the gap, mm. uh, but she couldn't make it for whatever reason. So mm. I think, yeah, the, the second idea was to, was to just uh, throw lots of companions out. Yeah, exactly. So, and some, some of them stuck, some of them didn't. I mean, it's it's interesting now to when we listen to when I listen to Big Finish, um, and I hear Turlo, Nissa, Tegan. Unfortunately, not Matthew Waterhouse. Which I, th- I, th- I think it's a great shame. Perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps that day is coming. Who knows? Um, uh, the, I, I do get nostalgic for it, and it does seem to work slightly better than it did on TV. Mostly, I guess, because the actors are, are all a little bit more mature and they're aware of what their work, of, of the context of their work in the in the current day. But at the time, it did feel very, very crowded. I must say, and especially with Legopolis, I think it was misguided to have the introduction of a new uh, companion. Uh, at the same time, you were you were saying goodbye to to a doctor. That seemed. I know it's the classic drama, birth and and death in the same episode, but it, it seems they didn't have time to properly introduce uh, Tegan, um, you know, because they were too busy too busy uh, sort of saying goodbye to Tom. I suppose we should mention the uh, the interwaving theme for uh, for the certainly from the East Space, East Space trilogy, which is entropy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the end of things. Everything tending towards uh, entropy. There were lots of ideas that, uh, you know, in retrospect, as an adult, I look back at uh, Christopher H. Bidmead's scripts, and um, and there are so many scientific ideas that uh, that he little eggs, little scientific eggs that he laid into my brain, uh, which you know, and I I credit Doctor Who, not specifically Christopher, for you know, sort of sparking my brain, you know, opening little areas and laying these seeds in my head and making me the person I am today. Um, and uh, and the the scripts in this particularly this season were uh, were good examples of that. So, but, okay, but I have to ask you this: Legopolis, yes or no? Yes, I absolutely love Legopolis. Um, I didn't find the ideas too confusing um, when I was younger. As with most Doctor Who, um, when you're young, you only understand the bits you understand. You don't know that you're not understanding the bits you're not understanding. If you get my meaning. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the same. It's the Simpsons prim- principle, as the cliche that uh, kids don't don't spot the adult humour. They they only see the bit that's pitched at them. And I've always found that with Doctor Who. I, I can watch stuff back, particularly Legopolis and, and season eighteen, as an adult, and be very surprised at all of the all of the ideas, the real ideas that are, are in there, uh, that I never spotted, never even you know, gave a second thought to. Okay, so now we're at the end of season 18, but I guess it's an important time because what John Nathan Turner has done is he's, he's totally, over the course of I thought, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven stories and a few very short weeks in, 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 in that respect, is totally uproot and change what, what the country and the world perceives as being Doctor Who. For a lot of people, there was no Doctor before Tom Baker, um, and now he's gone, and John Nathan Turner's done that. Do you think he, did, do you think he managed it with season 18 in a smooth way? Absolutely. 
uh, well, I've re- recently rewatched it again with uh, with Erin Dawes, uh, and she has only ever seen early Tom Baker, and we went from watching a few of the early ones to watching this uh, straight through uh, into uh, Peter Davison's first season, and and it, yeah, it, it's it's beautifully done because season eighteen has a has a dark foreboding uh, feeling about it, uh, and it fades through into. Castrovalva, which we'll be talking about now, uh, which has a brand new feeling and a real feeling of a breath of fresh air, something new. And it's John Nathan Turner's first opportunity to introduce us to a new doctor, his doctor. He, John Nathan Turner said, I want someone new, different, I want a contrast. Um, and you've got light, bright, blonde, thin, airy, um, young. young, yeah, exactly, young Peter Davison. Um, and you can say you got. And I remember seeing him at the time and thinking, "Is that is that a doctor? He's he's very young, isn't he?" But at the same time, in hindsight, I can't see anyone who would have been better. You know, he, he, Peter Davison is for me and for a lot of people actually my doctor because he's the first one I saw come in and he's the first one I saw go out. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I, when I first started with Tom Baker, he was just like there, but Peter Davison was the first one I saw from all the way from left to right. So it's an it's an interesting time. I mean, you're right, Castrovalva. Your man sits up, and it's it's all new, it's all different. And although Castrovell was, I think, the third or fourth uh, thing that he recorded, um, the performance is pretty assured, I must say. Um, it must have been very, it must have been very hard to be in Tom Baker's costume, doing this whole uh, wandering around the TARDIS, having th- and you, as you say, the visual conceit of the scarf unraveling, um, knowing that the whole country is looking at you, going like, "Are you Doctor Who now?" And to see how that would be taken. And of course, we see, uh, which is uh, will will become another trademark. A hallmark of the JNT era. We uh, we have lots of interior TARDIS corridor shots, which I always used to love as, as a child. Also, again, uh, Peter Davison uh, harking back to earlier Doctors doing impressions. I believe he mentions Ice Warriors, um, uh, Jamie, uh, which is another thing that, that would be a hallmark of the JNT era. And also, very bravely, the Doctor is is out of action for for a good fifty percent of uh, of this story, which is something had not been done before uh, and wasn't done again until Christmas Invasion. Well, was, that not, was it not that way in Spearhead from Space? The Doctor was kind of at it for a lot of that? Uh, a lot of the first episode, but I don't think it was as long as this, was it? I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're because saying. we have the, uh, the zero box, zero cabinet, zero cupboard. Uh, <laughs> quite, for one of the episodes, he's, he's in it for practically the whole episode. And then at the very end of the story, he, he, he becomes the Doctor. And as, much, and as much as it's like, OK, you're back, you're actually solving problems, and that's good. But four episodes of, of post-regenerative trauma. See, and, the, and this is where it starts to, I, I start to back off a little bit. Because you're right, John Nathan Turner knew... Uh, a lot of the history of Doctor Who from, the, from in front of the cameras and from behind it and he knew what made a good Doctor Who but I wonder if this isn't the, uh, this isn't the beginning of the show becoming to perhaps not a self-indulgent yes actually that's the phrase to use uh, mm-hmm. a little self-indulgent a bit, and beginning to consume itself a little bit and I, I wonder um, whether that does that really alienate people or does it just reward the fans? This, this is the age-old debate, isn't it? It's, it's how much do you do this? How much do you put in for the fans uh, at the risk of alienating the audience? And I think at this stage, I think perhaps we were okay. But like you say, the scales are tipping uh, and, and not, not in our favour. One of the great things that John Nathan Turner was able to do, I mean, I, up until now, it's fair to say producers were the name at the end of the credits. And internally, of course, they were revered. But suddenly, one of the things John Nathan Turner does is he makes the producer, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Leeson, he makes the producer visible. Uh, and he and he imposes what we could describe as being a house style 
on the show. Um, and one of John Nathan Turner's great, th- great attributes was this ability to manipulate and generate publicity. Um, so the, the return of the Cybermen had been kept very, very quiet for a very long against fans who, who admittedly did not have the internet to help them. Um, you know, it was, it, it's kind of difficult to leak stuff into an, onto, into a media which is still largely print-based, very hard to do, um, or at least to, to steal a scoop. So the return of the Cybermen was an absolute coup de grace. It was fantastic to see um, these the, the Silver Giants returning, and in a story which, for the first time in almost uh, 15, 16 years, actually longer than that, uh, 18 years, had the death of a companion at the very end. Mm, the infamous death of Adric. Now, to be honest with you, I have to say that uh, l- looking at the Earth Shock DVD, which um, has optional CGI effects, um, Adric's death is a lot better realised because you see yes he is on the stash apologies to anyone spoiler alert but it's been 20 odd years um <laughs> so that adric's on the starship and he crashes into the earth uh, which is the cat the cataclysmic event which starts the death of the dinosaurs but again another brave move so we've got the, we've got a double header in publicity in that the cybermen are back yay um and that we have the death of a companion some people would celebrate that i celebrate it for dramatic effect um and i think by the time we got to that point um most of the actors and most of the production team were kind of glad to have a slightly slimmed down TARDIS crew as well, as mm. far as I can work, as far as I can make out. Yeah, certainly the writers, I would imagine. And of course, as we go into the 20th anniversary and, the, and season 20, when we're talking about John Nathan Turner's ability to his his uh, flair for courting publicity, become more and more important for him to be able to do this, as the powers that be at the BBC. Uh, would put more and more pressure on the show to make the show on a smaller budget and this is where they begin to to try and sweep the show under the carpet I think. So we're into season 20 and you're right Um, the show is now very recognisable it's very branded and John Nathan Turner seems to be fighting battles because the show's moved from its um, traditional slot of Saturday uh, and and certainly for the last year it's been been midweek I don't think EastEnders exists at this time does it? No, EastEnders was 86, I believe. Okay, fine. So Doctor Who is living in what is going to become EastEnders' slot, um, and it's up against some pretty stiff competition from the other channels, but nonetheless, we start season 20 with the Ark of Infinity um, and the appearance of a certain Mr Colin Baker. Mm-hmm. Yes, the infamous uh, Max Hill shooting uh, the fifth Doctor. Another spoiler there, but like Tom says, it's been 20 years. Get your acts <laughs> together. Uh, and this will be the first, first time that a, that a Doctor would, would appear in a previous story. Yeah, exactly so. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a story told, actually, that um, uh, Colin Baker, John Nathan Turner went to a wedding at Sarah Sutton's house, saw Colin Baker telling some stories, and thought, oh, if I haven't, you know, that, that's, on the, that, on the strength of that, I'll cast you as a doctor. Th- Made him laugh, laugh at a party, yeah. I think he, I think he regrets, uh, <laughs> towards the end of his life, certainly regretted having said that. Yeah, exactly, because it was patently untrue. If you get a chance, have a listen to the JNT memoirs. Fantastic insight. Look, very anecdotal, but um, a great insight into how, uh, into, into how his process was actually working as opposed to what was presented to the public. And, and, ver- and very nice to, 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 to hear him uh, give his side of things, because uh, we, although he was very public and, uh, and a great ambassador for the show... He very rarely really spoke out about um, the things that were said about him. Uh, and to finally hear him a few, with, with a bit of distance, sitting down uh, at a microphone and, uh, and, and explaining, and, and, say, uh, and explaining 
things from his perspective, I, I found really interesting. Actually, do you know what? I think we've kind of done it unwittingly, but now might be a good time to actually say hello to Ian and Michelle and to actually hear their opinion on the JNT memoirs. Take it away, guys. Hi, Ian and Michelle here, and this week we're reviewing parts one and two of the John Nathan Turner memoirs from Big Finish. These were recorded over a decade ago and chart his recollections of his whole career in Doctor Who. There's actually over four hours of content on these memoirs, and and it's JNT himself sharing the anecdotes. Welcome to the memoirs of John Nathan Turner, me. Over the next few intimate hours... I shall attempt to give a personal and detailed view of my memories of the time that I spent on the programme that is forever implanted on my memory. Uh, I remember when I was 16 years old, he came to a convention in California where I grew up. And it's long enough ago now that the only thing I remember is a performance he did at a cabaret. And what I remember is him in his classic Hawaiian shirt teaching the audience a Hawaiian song. Only it wasn't a real Hawaiian song. It was a song with lyrics that sounded vaguely Hawaiian, but were rather naughty. Given that that's my lasting image of this man, I was really surprised at how well-behaved these memoirs are. I found it to be really quite pleasant to listen to these and and perhaps a little bit haunting uh, to kind of listen to his soothing voice chatting away as he talked about the show that he clearly loved. He's obviously a controversial character in Doctor Who history, but in some ways the controversy is something that we focus on so much that it's easy to forget everything that he did before the, the later era. And these memoirs start right back in the Patrick Troughton era, which is something, again, that I personally hadn't really registered before, how long he'd been associated with the show. But he started out working with the show with Patrick Trout and he also worked with John Pertwee and got very involved in the show during the, the Tom Baker era, even before he took over as the showrunner. If there's a downside for me, it's that these anecdotes are kind of shallow. I mean, they're all interesting and they all show interesting parts of how challenging it can be to make the show. They're all the kind of anecdotes that you would tell again and again and again at conventions. A lot of the anecdotes, as you say, are quite fluffy and really throw away little observations about particular episodes. And this is interesting. He goes through every single episode that, that he was involved with. But here and there, you just get little nuggets of information, which, OK, they probably are the, the convention fodder that most people have heard over and over again. But I haven't been to many conventions, so to me a lot of it was fresh. There were just certain little pieces where he describes what to him was obviously a relatively minor decision, which was made for fairly mundane reasons but had a big impact on the show. The one that sticks in mind is he's talking about invasion of time and how there was a restriction on the studio time that they could use and where they could record. And so they just decided, oh, there's a hospital here, we can go use that. And, of course, that's created the whole interior of the TARDIS sequence with all those rooms that they were going through, which fans have poured over endlessly for years as being, wow, look at this amazing insight we got into the interior of the TARDIS. And that whole piece was decided upon in a fairly casual way as a sort of minor production decision. And it is interesting knowing that some of those decisions were controversial. There are times in these memoirs where he stands his ground and defends his decision and gives some of his reasons. There are other times when he acknowledges that he probably made a mistake. In the cold light of day, years after the event, I can say I think the costume was possibly something of a mistake. It was my idea to make the Sixth Doctor lacking in clothes sense. Colin never complained about his garish outfit, though. But he did say that if there had to be a costume like that in any show, he'd want to be wearing it. Over the last few years, I've seen a few people make parallels between J&T and Russell T. Davis. 
But listening to this, actually, when he's talking about the Davison era, and the early Davison era in particular, when he had just taken over, I was most reminded of Moffat when he took over the show. Because a repeating thing that John talks about is how it was new Doctor Who and he had to change everything. He changed the lead actors, the companions, some of the structure, the title music, and it was all his new vision of Who. Brian Hodgson at the Radiophonic Workshop was delighted when I approached his department for a new version of the Doctor Who theme tune and for the incidental music throughout the season. And once Peter Howell of the Radiophonic Workshop had delivered his stunning new version of the Doctor Who theme, I was able to talk more fully with Sid Sutton, the graphics designer allocated to supply the new opening titles and logo that would accompany it. I stressed that he should not be over-influenced by the titles of the past, though I did want to retain the idea of travelling through time and space. I was very much reminded of season five of the news series when Moffat was changing everything in sight and kept saying it's new Who, so it's new Daleks and new TARDIS and all the other things that he changed because he was stamping his mark on the show. This is a four-volume set, and just the first two volumes take you all the way up to the middle of Colin Baker's era. But next week, we'll take a look at the second two episodes, really towards the end, I think, in particular, as he's looking back on his time on the show that's when you really get into some of the meat of what this man was like. So thank you, Ian. Thank you, Michelle. Again, warmly recommended that if you can get hold of those memoirs, those JNT memoirs, they are quite long, but they provide a fascinating insight into the mind of the man who made the show. Season 20, we've got the Guardian trilogy. How, how, did you, how do you take the Guardian trilogy overall? Uh, it doesn't really work for me. There's a, it's notable for its its clangor, which is a terminus. I suppose if I had to pick a best one, it would be Enlightenment. I, I, I'm interested to say that you didn't like Terminus. I quite, of the three stories, I, that was my favourite. I, 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 quite like, I quite like that one. Well, having said that, I mean, I, rem- I liked it when I was a kid, but then I've come back to watch it, and no, it doesn't really, it doesn't really tick any of my boxes. It doesn't tickle any of my fun spots. Mm, okay, I suppose you're right. You know, all the hallmarks of John Nathan Turner's era are in there, in as much as you've got the, the TARDIS interior scenes, impending, impending peril, um, lots of costumes, lots of separate. But the costumes are beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Okay, so we, we rattle on um, through uh, season 20 and we arrive at The King's Demons, which, in which we have the return of The Master. Which was another of, uh, of John Nathan Turner's, uh, or uh, was on his wish list when he took over, was to bring back The Master. And uh, he certainly made the most of him once he had done, didn't he? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, we've also got the introduction of uh, the character of Chameleon. Uh, <laughs> Who? Yeah, exactly so. So we'd had... We'd, we'd, seen canine he'd come and gone uh, and chameleon was meant to be a shape-changing android who was going to participate in season 21 um but unfortunately it's, it's it became very clear very quickly that the prop didn't work as it was sold um it was very noisy and uh, really kind of impractical although that said in reality all you re- all you would really need to do and maybe, again i'm not a producer of television would be to show the ca- the android becoming a character then just hire an actor for it but you know, clearly that was clearly that was more of an issue than uh, that I'm giving it credit for. The story, as I as I understood it, and this may just be Doctor Who folklore, was um, as the the guy that had built the thing uh, and, and oper- could operate it gave them a demonstration, and then did he die? And they were and they had already brought 
the uh, the equipment, and nobody else knew how to operate it. That would that would seem to that would seem to be right. Apologies if the if uh, the fellow concerned didn't actually pass away, but that does ring a bell in my memory as as, as far as stories go. Well, okay, so season tw- so the end of season twenty, the end of the King's Demons, gives way into um, arguably one of John Loth- one of the finest moments of eighteen eighty two, the Five Doctors. Um, now set up as a it's set up as a twentieth anniversary story, and I know um, Trevor said on many occasions this is the sh- the story which brought him into Doctor Who. It is what it is. It's a pantomime. It's the, it's the pantomime of Doctor Who. It's it's the special of specials. Um, all of the actors getting back together, with one notable exception, Mr. Baker. Um, but to his great credit, he has said since that he regrets not doing it now, uh, which I think is kind of cool because it's. I think the stories I hear, I hear um, anything from he didn't want to be one of five to it was too soon to return to the role. In fairness, I understand all of that. I do get it, but it, it seems to be it, it seems to be one of those things where perhaps he was just afraid that having just recently left the show, he didn't want to be reiterating his claim to it and his association with it um, and, and uh, limiting his own possibility for working, which is a shame. I suppose there, there are probably more mundane uh, reasons as well. I mean, he'd. Um... Uh, he, like I say, he was so close to having recently done it, and also he he he'd removed his curls, uh, and and he'd, he'd gone quite grey, hadn't he? Uh, so I, mean, I don't know how much notice you get for, for these sorts of things, but it would have meant either wearing a wig, or or, uh, or growing his curls back and having having his hair dyed, and maybe that would have felt a bit. You know, a bit odd to be doing. It would have reminded him of his own mortality, maybe. Exactly so. Exactly so. And it is that. It is the sad, the sad truth that um, the oldest living Doctor Companion team is now his and Louise Jameson. You know, the others have you know, mm. the other Doctors have passed on. It's a shame. Um, but the, the Five Doctors, a romp, um, written by Terence Dix, and you know, originally offered to Robert Holmes, but. All the things that made Doctor Who what it is when it was there absolutely returned to the screen. Of course, Tom Baker's not 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 there for the filming, but he does show up in Sharda. But again, a triumph for John Nathan Turner. You know, there's, there's quite a tall order there. Can you get ev- so many different elements and so many different companions back into the show in such a short space of time? But arguably, he manages it. Wooing so many egos uh, and getting them all to to, you know, to coalesce around one project must have tested his uh, his skills of whining and dining people to the maximum. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and to be honest with you, again, listen to those memoirs, he did pursue Tom Baker, who did apparently originally agree initially, uh, but then he changed his mind, which is uh, a shame, I think. Just, you know, that's the only thing we can say. He's not in it. We, only, we can only wish that he was. And talking of, uh, um, of wish lists for, uh, for, the, for John Nathan Turner and how difficult it would have been for him to organise it, what a what a list of things to achieve in one program was uh, dumped on Terence Dix, mm, mm. Uh, who does a magnificent job of of bringing all these uh, all these characters, all these returning monsters, all into one plot, which does it works. It works as well as it needs to. It's, now, uh, it's, it's not a clunker, is it? Now, you know, I've got to say this. I was brought up on on Terence Dix Doctor Who books. And I think this is one of the things which distinguishes Doctor Who fans from perhaps other fandoms in as much as this whole dearth of toys and games and video things and so on and so on, um, certainly in the early years. But there is um, a reliance on books uh, to actually spread and perpetuate the fandom, even be- even before the advent of easily available DVDs uh, and video cassettes. Um, and so I very, I've got a 
Terran Stick has a very special place in, in my heart because I, I won't say he taught me how to read, but I, I practiced reading on material that he generated most often. Um, now, what I think, what I noticed with the five doctors is that Terran Sticks is very much of the old school. He had to be. That's where he came from. He worked on the Pertwee years, he worked on the Tom Baker years. Um, and that's. From a distance now, it's very clear that he comes from the old school. When I look at the Five Doctors, because it's almost like a checklist, he does it very professionally, he does it very, very well. He did it, obviously did it inside the time constraints, with the constraints of having to write in Tom Baker and write him out again, and so on and so forth. But it's old school, uh, and very often I've heard it said, "Oh, can we get Terence? Can we think about getting Terence Dixon to write some new Who?" And I've got to say, to hit he, his response has always been, "No, it's a different show." And things like the Five Doctors show me that no, he, he couldn't. Um, the plot is great for old who, but it's got nothing to do with the way Doctor Who is now. I, and I'm not sure that Terence Dix could actually write for New Who. No, no, he he was uh, he ticked every box that he was required to tick, like you say. And mm. uh, it was the it was the BBC staff writer approach. Mm. He was a safe pair of hands. Yes, definitely. And, he, and, don't, and get me, don't get me wrong. As I say, I've got immense respect for Terence Dix's work, um, but at the same time, I just think it, that his his style belongs to. The, the area that he comes from. Um, I listened to the recent Big Finish release, The Ultimate Adventure, which has been written by which is written by Terence Dix. And much as I liked it, because it's it was it felt very much like old Who. It was so out of kilter with even big the way that Big Finish is put together. Um, you know, there didn't seem to be as many layers as there are in Big Finish. It didn't seem to be as uh, as as, ad- as adults, if you like. I won't say dark, but it didn't seem to be as mature as Big Finish is. But it was absolutely right for old Doctor Who. Well, I suppose while we're talking about uh, you know, the safe pair of hands that is Terence Dix, uh, you know, someone who you can you can give a script outline to, and he will bring it in, and he will he will do what's asked, and he will get it to you on time. Maybe now is a good time to talk about the the problems that they had with scripts. Certainly, John Nathan Turner had with um, with commissioning scripts and commissioning writers, uh, and things not quite gelling and working uh, very well. This this was perhaps the beginning of this. It's it's widely known that uh, that some of the scripts for some of the later series um, didn't tend to come up to the mark. And John Nathan Turner had a uh, a reluctance to use old writers. Uh, he didn't want. Um, I mean, there was many times they, they uh, tried to get uh, Robert Holmes back, um, and it was a long time before he finally came back. Sadly, a little, a little too late. Uh, but he was he was very reluctant to have um, old writers back, um, aside from uh, Terence Dix, uh, and have uh, old directors back, safe pairs of hands. And and this reportedly was sometimes to do with with personal feelings and uh, fallings out. Well, it, it I think it's kind of well known that back in the day. Uh, the producer and the script editor were two very distinct individuals um, where now we have a, uh, a showrunner who is the producer and the script editor so those responsibilities are centred on one person so that's exactly what's going on with Stephen Moffat that's exactly what's going on with Russell T Davies and back in those days you had John Nathan Turner as the producer and a fellow called Eric Saywood as the longest serving script editor on the show uh, at three, well certainly, certainly the longest serving partner with John Nathan Turner and yes it's it's known now that there were moments where there were issues and conflicts. But then again, in any kind of creative enterprise where you've got the best uh, in their field working, 
of course you're going to have some sort of, some sort of conflict. Um, you know, the, co- the conflict arises in the new show between sometimes between actors and directors and actors and showrunners. Um, but now, but at that point, yes, there were tensions. But I would cont- I would suggest to you that there are always going to be tensions when you're working with highly creative people who are being who are being asked to work to a very strict deadline on a very strict budget. Absolutely, but I think certainly around this this era, uh, these uh, differences and these problems background problems behind the scenes begin to become apparent in the way that the stories are put together and the way that the production uh, you know the, the production values uh, and the way stories are made it, it becomes visible on screen that something's not gelling behind the scenes I you know what you're right I mean I, I think we can look at some of the th- some of the things that go on in season 20 and season 21 um, for instance, Resurrection of the Daleks was meant to finish season 20 but got shifted forward. Um, and it, you know, it would have made more sense to have seen Resurrection of the Daleks at the end of a season rather than in the middle of one, uh, in total fairness. Um, and you're right, the introduction of companions, the way that stories put together. And I, but I guess it's all... I guess the, the, the easiest place to see it is the opening of season 21, Warriors of the Deep. Uh, because, number one, you've got a very, very bright production... Uh, part one, but also you've got oh god, the murker. I think you can take it from there. The murker isn't, isn't possibly not the great, not the greatest monster in Doctor Who history. It looks like it looks like two halves of a pantomime horse, uh, and they're both the back half. Which is well, frankly, yeah, I mean, it's um, second only to Irato from the creature from the pit, possibly. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, th- there are issues, there are stresses, there are strains. But yet again, this man, John Nathan Turner, is holding this all together. Um, we come down through the Awakening and Frontios. A, Frontios, a great show truly great show um down through the planet of fire by which time it is known that peter davison is leaving and so in planet of fire we have the introduction of nicola bryant as perry brown um and then we get into the season closer the caves of andrazani um a show which uh which, which seems to be quite well liked by doctor who fans is that fair uh yes i, I mean i believe it's quite consistently voted uh, the favorite the best mm, mm. um and i think Whilst it is, it's, it's, a fab, it's undoubtedly a fabulous uh, serial. It's, uh, it's directed beautifully. Um, people tend to have kind of a, a doughy, doughy-eyed, milky-eyed view. Uh, they're quite happy to, to forget its flaws. We have the, the, the magma creature. Nobody ever mentions the magma creature. And it, it's interesting that uh, if... Um, I mean, I do like the story, but uh, I, I, I watch it and I think, why does nobody mention the magma creature? When we're quite happy to um, to disregard another serial because of a, a ropey effect, uh, well, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, they're quite happy to um, to to pull that one apart uh, just because of the ropey dinosaurs. And I'm led to believe it's not it's not a bad story at all. Yeah, the st- the story with the magma creature is that there was supposed to be a lot more of it featured in the actual story, but the serial was overrunning by quite a substantive amount. Uh, and so Bob Holmes sits down with Eric Sayward. Uh, in a wine bar, according to John Nathan Turner. Again, get those memoirs listened to. Uh, and the only change that they can make to bring it back to time is to chop out all of the work with the magma creatures. So it, 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 it could have been there more. Uh, I suspect if it had been featured a little bit more, then it would be slightly less ropey than uh, it, current, it is in the current production. But Well, so for once, I think the, the, the time constraints worked as a, as a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, actually. Even the might of Graham Harper couldn't make that one work. So we get to the end of it, and we get to the end of Caves of Androzani, and our our brave young Doctor 
uh, gives way into, well, in every real sense, the technical and madness of Colin Baker. And we've mentioned already in the podcast earlier that uh, Colin Baker was not a snap decision. John Nathan Turner had known about him and known of him for a long while, as had most of the viewing public. Um, I seem to, I do remember dimly people going, oh, he played a baddie in The Brothers. So he, Colin Baker had a huge career and he's gone on to prove his worth. And, you know, I think no one would, would, would argue that he had a very raw deal from Doctor Who. Um, but as he arrives in the TARDIS, again, it's all change, um, which is where, where, well, I don't know, shall, shall, shall we, yeah, let, let's leave it there. We'll let it, we'll, we'll leave it for for James and Trev to pick up from there, I think. Suffice to say, I will nail my colours to the mast. I am a 60 fan. Okay, cool. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've got to say, I kind of, I, I agree with you. He confused me and scared me initially, um, but I've had time now to see what he was doing and I've grown up enough to understand what he was doing um, and to be honest I, I, it, it makes me angry that he didn't get a chance to do it I'm clearly not as angry as it makes him um, but then again by all, by all accounts and having seen him in person Colin Baker is a remarkably gentlemanly fellow so. I have had the pleasure of meeting the man we had a, we had a bit of a chat about uh, uh, about the circumstances uh, of his tenure mm. uh, and he he has the right to be a lot more angry than he is yeah. uh, and he yeah, he, as you say, he's, he's a wonderful, he's a gentleman, and has, of course has just been uh, nominated. The um, he's the president of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, is that right? And rightly so, and rightly so. Um, if it, I, I would say, maybe Trevor and James will mention this uh, in their cast, but uh, if you get hold of the Trial of a Time Lord box set, there's a very, very good interview. A uh, series of interviews with Colin Baker about all of that time, and as you rightly say, Leeson, he's got the right to be a lot angrier than he is. I think it still resonates a bit. Um, but at the same time, he's he's as gra- he's more gracious than I would be. Put it that way. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a mark of the measure of the man that he's gone on to become the ambassador for the show that he is, mm. despite being the most poorly treated doctor. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. Well, you know, so we so we've had a whistle stop tour through um, the last years of Tom Baker and the whole Fifth Doctor era. I think how would we how would we characterise what John how can we characterise what John Nathan Turner brought to those four years of Doctor Who's history? Change, my dear. Yeah, exactly so. Um, there's no way that the show could have gone on in the way it was. Tom Baker needed to be reigned in. A new Doctor was was uh, was, was introduced and then was, all, was allowed to bow out as well. The house style of the costume of the, of the Doctor's costume, the sound of the show, the look of the show, the Starfield introductions, all of these great changes at the time which were groundbreaking, monumental, introduced by John Nathan Turner. And at the same time, fighting the constant running battle with, ever, with shifting schedules, Increased uh, increased casts of actors and decreased money. It's uh, for my you know for my money. If if I had to characterise John Nathan Turner based just on the Fifth Doctor, he did manage to, as you rightly say, introduce change, my dear, uh, and he did it with style, grace, and in a way which stands up to the test of time. I think. No, I absolutely agree, uh, and I think if it hadn't been for that change, then we may have seen the. Uh the premature end to Doctor Who earlier than, than we did. Yeah, absolutely. So, Saint or Sinner, for my money, Saint. I know there are people who uh, take an opposite view, but some of my favourite moments from Doctor Who, it, uh, overall, come from this period, the end of the fourth Doctor and the, and the tenure of the fifth. Um, particularly, one lovely moment, I think, 
in the caves of Androzani, where the Doctor is flying a spaceship back towards the planet and he starts to regenerate, but pushes it back just so he can save his friend. That's everything about Doctor Who for me. It's wonderful. Well, I wish I could disagree with you for the sake of uh, podcast dramatic tension, but on this occasion, I'm going to have to agree with you. So, join us again, well not us, join Trev and James next week uh, when they'll be discussing the next phase of John Nathan Turner's tenure as producer of Doctor Who, Hmm. where they'll be taking a look at the twin dilemma through to the show's premature end in Survival. Perfect. Okay, the the ironically titled Survival, yes. (laughs) In which case, all right, well, cool, listen, thank you, it's been lovely to be sat in the camper van. Uh, it's actually nice to be, be sat around someone I can agree with for a change. Uh, it might not always happen. Don't get used to it. Um, thanks again to all of you for listening as well. Once again, please, as much feedback as you would like to send, we're always grateful to receive it, mostly because James looks after the inbox. Uh, aside from that, take care, and, well, we'll see you very soon. Cheerio! Bye! That was The Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.